We're celebrating 500 editions of Travel with Rick Steves today, and you're invited to join in the fun. We'll sample highlights from a few of our favorite guests over the years. Yeah, there are plenty of times I stop because I see something, but I most often stop because I hear something first. We'll also get pointers for enjoying a stylish night out in London, one that doesn't have to break the bank. Fashion critic James Sherwood says you can't go wrong if you start out by dressing like the fancy bankers when they head out of the office. And they almost to a man wear several rogue suits with one button, with a white open neck shirt and very, very good shoes. And that will probably take you anywhere for a chat. And enjoy the pop music of Germany, from syrupy beer hall tunes to intense rock bands who turned electronica into a signature sound of their own. They use things like flutes with synthesizers, electronic synthesizers, and in the end they just used to build everything themselves. It'll be fun. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When you're ready to splurge on an elegant night on the town, what better place to find yourself than London? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In just a bit, the author of James Sherwood's Discriminating Guide to London suggests just the right kinds of venues for you to grab a drink or dinner and look like a million without going broke. And we'll add a German soundtrack as we hear how pop music expressed the aspirations and struggles of Germany both during and after the Cold War. That's all coming up in the hour ahead. This is episode number 500 of Travel with Rick Steves. Can you believe it? Let's take a few minutes to remember a handful of our favorite fellow travelers. Some of them are household names, a couple are even royal, and many of them you probably encountered for the first time on this show. In all cases, they're remarkable travelers, and they've taught us a lot about the world over the last 12 years on our show. Back when we put our first show together in 2005, the top things on the minds of our listeners were safety concerns and coping with a weak U.S. dollar exchange rate. Our very first show featured bike travel enthusiast Willie Weir, who explained why worries over safety were keeping many Americans from seeing the world. If crime stats have gone down, the only thing that points to is the fact that they're told to be afraid. And if you're told to be afraid by enough people, often enough, you are. And I always tell people, you know, if you want to live your life in fear, spend an hour or two in front of the television set and make sure you're, you know, read the newspaper from cover to cover every single day. And if you want to think this world's a pretty amazing place, go travel around it or get on a bicycle and do it. It was a real eye-opener in 2008 to spend an hour with John Lord Alderdice from Belfast. He was one of the key players in negotiating an end to North Ireland's long-standing troubles between its Catholic and Protestant factions. Lord Alderdice shared his perspectives on how you start peace talks between adversaries. If you analyze things in terms of political positions or moralistic terms, then you will get people divided. Let's talk about people as people, and that's a very different way of viewing it. Security measures on their own will never solve the problem. These are problems of relationships. They are political problems. And the only way they're going to be resolved in the end is by people sitting down and talking with each other. Mm -hmm. And think about those not as some alien group, but as human beings, as people with the same feelings and fears and thoughts and ambitions as you. Politics is not about how we agree with each other. Politics is about how we disagree without killing each other. And that's what the European Union's about. Were you listening to Travel with Rick Steves back when we got to talk to a Scandinavian princess or to an American prince? Princess Martha Louise of Norway told us about the children's book she wrote, 
to explain why you don't see royals walking around with heavy gold crowns on their head these days. This book, Why Kings and Queens Don't Wear Crowns, um, is because when I was out doing my official functions around Norway, there were always mothers, you know, or fathers for that matter, pushing their children forward, going, look, look, there's the princess. And the children would go, no, that's not the princess. So yes, yes, that's the princess. And they would go, no, she's not wearing a crown. <laughs> and they were really disappointed. And all these children were so disappointed all the time, I thought, right, I have to do something about this to explain why we don't wear crowns. Wow. The queen says in the end that the crown on your head is only there for show. What really matters is that you wear the crown in your heart. And so from that day, all the royalty wore their crowns in their heart. She said those crowns tended to fall off when you're learning to ski and get all scuffed up. William Lobkowitz is from Boston, went to school at Harvard, and also just happened to be an heir to a noble family. They were driven out of Czechoslovakia by the communists. Then William was invited back to Prague in 1990 to reclaim and organize his family's treasures. They were scattered around hundreds of locations, and the Czech government wanted him to put them on display for the public. He told us what he found. There are paintings, furniture, everything you can imagine, decorative arts, as well as a huge family library. There are millions of pieces of paper, autograph scores of Beethoven and of Mozart, letters from Rudolf II to the, the emperor to our family, raising us to princes and all sorts of, you know, really interesting things. And, and that's what makes our collection so, so important because they're a holistic collection. They're still intact, and that's quite unusual because there was so much damage in World War II or after and things that were lost. And I think that's what makes our, our job so important to put them in that context of not just this family but also the history and the patronage there. <laughs> We're looking back on just a few of our favorite guest interviews from the past 500 episodes of Travel with Rick Steves. The first tour guide to really show me around Turkey was Melika Seval. She was an expert on the amazing Roman ruins of Ephesus. Meli learned to develop a tough skin in order to survive as a modern, independent businesswoman in a society where that wasn't always easy. Once I asked Meli why Turkey has a law that makes it illegal to badmouth the founder of the modern Turkish Republic, Kemal Ataturk. I'll never forget her response. Yes, you're right. We cannot, by law, ridicule or belittle Ataturk. We love him, respect him so much that we don't want to be harassed on that. And you know what's so interesting to me is, much as that seems hard to just except as a modern free person that somebody says you can't insult somebody, I think that Turks go with that. I mean, it's not a real problem because when you really know Ataturk, you've got to realize he is one of the super statesmen of the 20th century in the whole world. He is a super statesman. That's why we call him the father of the Turks. Ataturk means father of the Turks. And we who love democracy, who love freedom of speech, really do not mind if we ban from saying bad things to Atatürk. How would you say something good about Atatürk in Turkish? What's a good phrase about that? Atatürk çok seviyorum. What does that mean? I love Atatürk. Say that again in Turkish. Atatürk çok seviyorum. Beautiful. I'm sorry to report that Meli passed away earlier this year. Anatolia, the land of mothers, has lost one of its finest. 
But Melly's spirit will certainly live on in the many travelers that she inspired as she shepherded them around her beloved turkey. Digging into the nuances of a culture is one of my favorite things about travel with Rick Steves. When American travelers go to Ireland, they have a lot of fun looking for fairies and leprechauns. So I asked my Irish friend, Barry Maloney from County Cork, what the Irish really think of all this. Supposedly, we're not even meant to talk about them or mention them. So we're, we're just, probably drawing them onto us now. Just you between know? you and me, we'll hope you're not listening. <laughs> between you and me, the reality of them in description in old Irish folklore, number one, they're not small and with wings hiding under mushrooms, things like that. They're actually more human size, and they bring bad luck to people. Huh. For example, they can steal your children away and replace your children with fairy children, which are old, decrepit fairies in the form of a baby, looking like your baby. So you wouldn't even know, but then your child is possessed by this fairy. Exactly, the stolen child. Oh, that's serious business. Serious business. There's no doubt if you ask, say, 100 Irish people, hundred of them will say they don't believe in fairies. But subconsciously we do. In other words, put them to the test and put them out in a place where you say is associated with fairies and leave them there at midnight and they won't stay very long. We reckon in Ireland there's only so much good luck in your life and why complicate things? Why take a risk? It's Travel with Rick Steves, episode number 500. So we're taking a few moments with you to remember the kinds of conversations we've enjoyed over the years on the show. Actor and writer Mahar Joffrey is sometimes referred to as the Julia Child of Indian cuisine. Joffrey grew up in New Delhi when India was still ruled by the British Raj. She's helped the English develop a deeper love for Indian food beyond the corner curry stand. She writes about her childhood in her memoir, Climbing the Mango Trees, and described it so well for us... You could almost taste it. So we had all these lovely mango trees in our orchard. And the thing was to get them when they were raw. And when they're raw, they're sour. They're wonderfully sour. All my cousins and I, we would all climb these mango trees. And we'd be on the branches like little birds with our pen knives. And then the eldest would take down a big mango, a green mango. And he would peel it and give us little slices. And we all carried up. With a salt, pepper, it had a little roasted cumin in it, a little chili powder. And then we would dip the sour mango in that crunchy mango and then eat it. It was so delicious and it was really a sign of growing up. When traveling in France, we've learned it's crucial to make an attempt to speak a little of the language if you want to be polite. In fact, authors Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau discovered that a simple bonjour is the key to unlocking almost every social interaction. The first thing that travelers stumble on is their unawareness of the importance of saying bonjour. You have to say it all the time. We say that if you say bonjour and you think you're saying it way too much, you're probably just getting it (laughs) just right. When you take the bus, you have to say it. When you uh, buy a newspaper at the newsstand or a magazine, you have to say bonjour so that you acknowledge that you enter their space. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's not really a word. It's a signal you send to tell them that you're ready to start communicating. And if you don't send the signal, they don't communicate. It actually won't even take your money. Oh, so it's like turn on the receiver, prepare for transmission. Exactly. And if you're getting on a bus, it means you're entering somebody's territory. I'm here. You have to say bonjour if you expect civility and good treatment. If you're in a store and you want to be served, 
the person behind the counter will not do it until you say bonjour and you've begun the, the interaction. What if it's after dark or you're doing something at, at midnight? Oh, then you say bonsoir. Back here in America, historian David McCullough told us how he loves to see the famous places from history in person, to imagine what happened there and to meet the people who live there now. I've loved traveling ever since I was a child. Uh, not that I went very far, but the, the few trips I did take just changed my life. I was thrilled by them. I went to uh, Monticello, for example, as a young high school student, and I went to Williamsburg and Gettysburg, and I have no doubt whatsoever that those experiences increased my love of history, my curiosity about history, because somehow when you're at the place where something really happened, it's not just some dry textbook rendition of something you have to know for a test. And you get a feeling of the human beings that were there. What always strikes me is that everything is bigger than I expected. And I think one of the things you have to do is talk to people when you get there and talk to all kinds of people. That's the mark of a good traveler, how you connect Absolutely. with people. Absolutely, talk to people and, and be patient and don't be in a hurry all the time. That was just a taste of 500 hours of travel with Rick Steves, and let's hear it for 500 more. You can look for your favorite guest interviews whenever you like. They're all in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Next, we'll go from Memory Lane to Savile Row and St. James Place for time-tested tips for a fun night out in London. James Sherwood joins us to take your calls at 877-333-RICK. Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm from London, and it's absolutely fabulous to be here traveling with Rick Steves. Like all popular destinations, London is home to two parallel worlds, one touristy and one where the real local action takes place. James Sherwood has compiled the witty, discriminating guide to London in order to bridge the gap between newcomers and longtime Londoners. In it, he reviews their traditional favorite places to eat, drink, dress, shop, stay, and to be seen. It harkens back to the world of gentlemen and gentle ladies and explains how the best of 19th century traditions still carry on in today's modern cosmopolitan city. James joins us from the BBC Studios in London right now on Travel with Rick Steves for his tailor-made advice for enjoying a posh night out in London. He'll take your calls in just a bit at 877-333-7425. James, you've written a fascinating book that, that helps any traveler to London understand that parallel world that so many of us are almost blind to. How did you get interested and, and how did you learn so much about this upper echelon in London society? Well, I've been in London for 25 years. And when, when I first arrived, I was five years old. My parents took me to see Trooping the Colour. Um, so I saw the Queen and saw the Crown Jewels in the Tower of London and decided then and there that I would uh, migrate from the frozen north and become a Londoner. And I think after 25 years, you are classified as a Londoner. And how much change have you seen in 25 years from this uh, elegance that originally attracted you to this great city? I'm quite reassured that London, because it has the listing system, the grade one, grade two for architecture, for important buildings, that they're very much ring-fenced and protected. So there's, there's little change there. But that said, there is an enormous amount of building work at the moment. I mean, I've calculated there are probably more square miles of development now than there would have been after the Blitz when the Germans mm. bombed us. So mm. it really is an interesting time for London. I want to go out on an unforgettable, for the rest of my life, night on the town in London. Uh, first of all, i got to dress right, and, and we've got plenty of money. Take me out shopping. 
I think the first point is that actually you don't need to wear a tie necessarily. You just look at the hedge fund boys. I mean, the, these are the people who, who really have the money rather than the aristocracy in the UK. And they almost to a man wear Savile Row custom, you call it, bespoke suits with one button um, from Savile Row with a white open neck shirt and very, very good shoes from Lob, possibly. And that will probably take you anywhere for a chap. Well, that's good to know. And uh, how would a chap get to the uh, theater or the concert or the dinner? Would they drive or would they have a, a driver or no. would they take a taxi? Well, people do have drivers in London, but it's a bit ridiculous, to be honest. You actually can't drive around London anymore. Mm -hmm. There are too many restrictions. Um, the bikes now, the um, bicycles have become like a swarm of mosquitoes. So you're held up. For, you, you probably wouldn't make the curtain at the Royal Opera House if you had a driver. You'd end up having to get out and walk anyway. Mm -hmm. So if, if I was a lady, I would probably take two inches off the heel and walk it. <laughs> okay, and would tonight we're going to have a dinner, and would you normally have a dinner and then a, a musical event or a theatre, or what would you do? Personally, like, I'd like to eat after the theatre. This right. depends whether you're at the Opera House and watching Wagner, at which point you're not going to get out until 11 o'clock and you're going to be exhausted. But I would like to go for a cocktail first. I would probably go to Duke's Bar, just off St. James's Street, Duke's Hotel. This is where Ian Fleming, the James Bond author, um, mm. ordered his vodka martinis shaken, not stirred. And we know this is absolutely true because it's in, in Fleming's memoirs. And they still serve such a thing called the Vespa Martini. It's very old-fashioned in the nicest possible way. There is no music. You cannot stand up. You have to be seated, which I find absolutely delightful. And you are served. So there's no bellying up to the bar. And they will not serve more than two martinis anywhere. They'll suggest you move on to champagne or a gin and tonic because they're lethal. And that, for me, is, is a barman like Alessandro looking after his customers and making sure that everybody's having an elegant time so it doesn't get rowdy, it doesn't get noisy. You know, I, I don't like pipe music. I prefer conversation with the person that I'm with. And then what would we do? I'd go to the theatre or I would go to a concert. I might go to the Wig the Wigmore Hall is extraordinary on Wigmore Street. I mean, for classical music, it's second to none for recitals. Um, the Royal Opera House, I really wouldn't leave London without seeing at least one performance if you possibly can. It doesn't matter if it's in the gods. Sometimes it's better, particularly with the ballet, because you see the formations from the gods. And I sometimes think that's that's preferable to sitting in the stalls and being hit with sort of sweat from a dozen ballerinas or a dozen <laughs> swans. <laughs> okay, so we like a, a seat high up so we can see the formations. Yes. That's a yes. good idea. How, how would you survey what's available? What's your information source when you're choosing some entertainment for the evening? I'd look at the newspapers, actually, mm -hmm. and I'd look at the reviews. I'd probably go to the Telegraph or I would go to the Times, and I, I would trust their reviewers to tell you the, the best performances. Musicals are entirely subjective. You know, it depends on the genre of the music, of whether you love the composer or, you know, whether you want something energetic or poppy or, you know, something like a jukebox musical, which I don't particularly enjoy. Mm -hmm. But um, you also have the straight plays. You know, Shakespeare's Globe is probably the most magnificent theatre in London. It's, I mean, it's mm. a, a reproduction of Shakespeare's Globe on the South Bank. And you, you really feel as though you're in the late Elizabethan era. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Sherwood. His book is The Discriminating Guide to London, an unabashed companion to the very finest experiences in the world's most cosmopolitan city. And James, you have a wonderful knack of collecting restaurants and then grouping them in different categories. And uh, you have all these different categories. You're going out with me, so what category would you, would you uh, look to? 
Oh, for a restaurant? Yeah. I would probably think if I was coming to an, into an inheritance and then you could pay. <laughs> I think that <laughs> okay, would so be you've, ideal. You've got where to eat when you're coming into an inheritance, where to eat with amorous intent, uh, where to eat in the company of beautiful people, where to eat with, with important, your godchildren. important client with your godchildren. Okay, I'll be when you've come into an inheritance. So where are we going to go? I'd probably go to Wilton's for dinner, actually, rather than for the set lunch. I would, ah. I, I would spoil myself. Wilton's on German Street. Mm. It's an ancient restaurant. It was an oyster bar, really, in the 18th century. It was an oyster, it was an oyster shack more, more than anything else. But now it, it's probably one of the most discreetly smart restaurants in London. It's one of the very few places that the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh dine privately, and they very, very rarely do. I think the last restaurant was Bellamy's which is just on Bruton Place off Bruton Street in Mayfair. Wilton's. Okay, so we go to yes. Duke's Bar, and then we go to Wilton's yes. after our play or our concert. Very nice. Mm-hmm. And what would we eat? I mean, just describe just for a moment our, our meal. Well, for, for Wilton's, it, it's led really by seafood and by game. And it's very old Edwardian in a way. So do Solmonier would be a very popular dish, a lobster omelette, something something quite light as well, because I think after a theatre, you really don't want to eat an awful lot. I think you'd like a glass of champagne, certainly, and you'd probably like half a dozen or a dozen oysters. Mm. Um, but I think keeping it light and keeping it simple, and the food here is not sort of French oak cuisine anymore, which it certainly was, you know, 20, 30 years ago in That's London. True. Oat cuisine was very fussy. There were far too many courses. You'd probably be, feel slightly queasy mm-hmm. when you'd finished. And I think people have moved on now and want much purer food, simpler food, but still with the best possible ingredients. Oh, this sounds really delightful. And uh, in your book, you, you warn us that London has its own calendar and clock. We have to be careful mm. about the tempo of the city. Uh, what do you mean exactly by this warning? It isn't 24 hours, London, and if, if you wish to pursue a 24-hour city the way that you would in Tokyo, you'll be very disappointed because you really are sharing the streets with quite dodgy characters. Uh, mm-hmm. There certainly are 24-hour restaurants, like um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the most civilized one is Duck and Waffle, which is on top of a, a glass skyscraper in the city, and that is open 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. You do find city boys there, and... I'd rather be, you know, on, on the 55th floor than being on on the streets in London at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. It's not that it's dangerous. It, mm-hmm. It's just that there's nothing happening. It's a ghost right. town. Our guide on Travel with Rick Steves to the finer aspects of London nightlife is the author of James Sherwood's Discriminating Guide to London. James calls it an unabashed companion to the very finest experiences in the world's most cosmopolitan city. James has also written Saville Row about the famous street of London's master tailors, fashion at Royal Ascot, and a guide for the perfect gentleman. He's published by Thames and Hudson. And Pam's calling in from Atlantic Beach in Florida. Pam, thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you have a comment for James? Yes, um, I just wanted to let you know that I was in London last year and I ate at the Rules restaurant, and I found it yes. to be not only very elegant when you walked in, it was very, very beautiful, uh, the service was impeccable, and also you got really, really authentic uh, British food. The service was wonderful. I actually had went there prior to going to the theater and really enjoyed it. I would re- highly recommend that restaurant. I'm so pleased to hear that. So this, this is Rules, R-U-L-E-S. It's a classic restaurant, and uh, James is just a, a big fan of Rules. Well, what, what is your experience with Rules, James? And what would um, Pam mean by authentic British cuisine or English cuisine? 
Well, it's, it's certainly the oldest restaurant in London for a start, so you would have characters like Dickens and Crookshank eating there regularly, and you still feel as though you might be sitting at a table next to Charles Dickens. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. It's a level of elegance and excellence, I suppose, that you would imagine, well, you would see on Downton Abbey. It's been used as a mise-en-scene for Downton Abbey. Um, and as for authentic food, it, it's very meat and game-led. It's very sort of beef, beef and potatoes, the way one would imagine an Englishman eating in the 18th century. But it, it's done with a very light touch and an awful nice. lot of class. Rules Restaurant on Maiden Lane. Pam, thanks for your call. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye now. Thank you. Yes. Vincent's on the line in Cumberland, Maryland. Vincent, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was planning a week in London for myself and my friends, and I've looked at a number of restaurants and guidebooks and online. I was wondering if you could recommend any restaurant that could be is nearby or an easy walking distance to Westminster or Tower Bridge Pier, because I was hoping, like, Aside from eating by the river, I would love to like take like an evening cruise after finishing the meal. So we got Westminster and Tower Bridge, two different parts of London, but connected by by the boat, right, James? Yeah, they're, they're very different parts of London, and actually Westminster is something as a, of a desert for restaurants. Mm-hmm. I, I would go past Westminster and and, and head for the river cafe you can look that up online the river cafe i mean it's sort of introduced very simple italian cuisine gosh it's got to be 20 years ago now it's incredibly famous um very popular with famous people as it happens and um has an amazing terrace looking out onto the thames and it faces uh, i think it's the bridge in hammersmith actually but james you could walk over tower bridge into the south bank and find some interesting places couldn't you i think you're you're spot on there you know you've hit the nail on the head that if you walk uh, over tower bridge you're in to Bermondsey, you're literally five or ten minutes away from Borough Market, and mm-hmm. if you like Dickens, it really is sort of Oliver Twist. Consider yourself <laughs> Borough Market; it's absolutely delightful, and there are some amazing restaurants. The best one, I think, is Roast, and it's in an old sort of glass conservatory that looks a little bit like the Royal Opera House. In fact, I think it was from the Royal Opera House originally. And that is an absolute winner. And in that market, it's just a festival of foodie little stands, yes. little, little trendy yes. high-end food stands. And you don't think yes. of high-end gourmet food in an open-air market, but you find it there, don't you? You you do. It also might cost you £10 for a tomato if they call it heritage, <laughs> which is quite funny. I don't mind that at all. I'm a culinary <laughs> arts graduate, so oh, I'll be wonderful. spending plenty of time in Borough Market. So oh, that's you know. definitely on my list for uh, that day I'm spending in that part of London. You'll probably bump into Jamie Oliver or Nigella <laughs> Lawson or w- w- one of those great, great cooks. Yeah, definitely. Vincent, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Happy travels. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Sherwood. His book is The Discriminating Guide to London. And Michael's calling in from Houston in Texas. Michael, do you have any uh, thoughts on on traveling in London? Well, yes. uh, Actually, I'd like to ask a question of James. Uh, I like to listen to music when I travel. What I'd like to ask James is uh, if he could recommend some places in London to go to listen to folk music, uh, whether British, Irish, Welsh, or Scottish. It depends whether you like to, like to eat while you're listening to music or, or whether you would like to just listen to the music. But for, for me, I suppose, if you compare the sort of grungier side of London, 
Camden Town is it for that kind of music, but it wouldn't be particularly traditional folk. It would probably be folk influenced. It's sort of the spiritual home of Amy Winehouse, which is okay. possibly as far away from folk as you can get, <laughs> but um, sort of get reggae blues, I suppose, Amy Winehouse. But that's mm-hmm. the sort of spiritual home of the of younger musicians in bars and pubs and clubs, um, very impromptu. And um, you you would find what you're looking for in Camden Town, I'm sure. Well, that sounds great. I love the blues and reggae, so uh, I'll definitely Fantastic. Give that a try. You know, I'm I'm always impressed by Time Out and What's On and these magazines you pick up for a Agreed. pound or two. They're monthlies, aren't they, James? They're weekly. Actually, Time Out's weekly, and it's free now. Oh, it's free. So it's, uh, a it, weekly yeah, magazine. It's, become it's, free. it's got a world of uh, entertainment, everything from you know clubs that are meeting that might match your interests yeah. that you could just drop in on to free organ concerts in churches to uh, what pubs have music. And if you're looking for you know your your Scottish or your Welsh or your Irish, uh, it would be described there. Actually, the Irish pubs are probably your best bet as well. So flick through time out for that because, yeah. the, you know, invariably you'll find people breaking into song or breaking glasses over each other's heads. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, one thing I've found all over Europe is that if you want to find locals having fun, go to the Irish pub. I don't care if you're in France mm-hmm. or Italy or Poland. If you find an Irish pub, you're going to find locals out having a wonderful time. Oh, the old the oldest Irish pub is on Fleet Street, um, and I forget the name. I'm so sorry, but you only have to go down to the bottom of Fleet Street, and you'll find it. There's a lot of pubs in that area that are actually historic buildings too, with beautiful yes. pub architecture and elegant furnishings. I I took a pub architecture tour once around Fleet Street, and it's amazing all the historic pubs that are tucked away here and there in and around Fleet Street. Fleet Street and High Hoban, really, the, the oldest pubs in London, Yoldi Cheshire Cheese, Yoldi Mitre, they're all Yoldi something. <laughs> um, the Mitre is, is minuscule and very, very hard to find. It's just off Hatton Garden, the Diamond District of London, and there you see this incredible tree stump, a cherry tree stump, that's sort of built into the wall, and allegedly Sir Christopher Hatton and Queen Elizabeth I danced around it, and I believe it, actually. I do I do believe that story. You know, these sort of places, the Mitre, Punch and Judy, Yield Cheshire Mm-hmm. They're touristy now, they're right on the main drag, but they have a real history, a real heritage, a real respect among local people who know their heritage. You also go late. If, you, if you're going to heritage pubs like the Cheshire Cheese, mm-hmm. the tourists will probably have left after 6 p.m. Uh, so you're going to find it a little bit quieter, a little bit fuller of locals, probably a lot of the legal profession because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Old Bailey is very near there, yeah. the, the Inns of Court are very yeah. near. So you find a very, they, they take on a very different character after dark, put it that way. James Sherwood, it's been delightful talking with you. Your guidebook, Discriminating Guide to London. And, you know, chatting with you about London, I feel this uh, love you have for your city. Let's just finish off with uh, one little moment that that you enjoy personally, uh, in spite of all the many places you have to look at to list in your guidebook, where you just feel like, yeah, London is, is the place that's right for me. Well, actually, the the places to go when when you want a certain serenity and an awful lot of quiet are the Sir Christopher Wren churches that were built in the city after the Great Fire of London in 1666. And you, you see the most remarkable architecture. There's nobody ever in there in the daytime. Mm-hmm. And you're transported back to, I mean, some, some of these churches, are not, not the Wren churches, but some of them are medieval, like St. Bartholomew's, um, which mm-hmm. is in Clerkenwell. And I find the architecture there, and, and the, well, the hustle and bustle of London, to get away from it for at least five or ten minutes and have a tiny bit of peace and quiet is absolutely invaluable, plus the parks. You know, London mm-hmm. is a very green city. Hyde Park in particular is larger than Monaco, apparently. You know, mm-hmm. so you can always find a corner of Hyde Park to yourself.
You know, that is such a nice note to end on because we talked about how the, the skyscrapers are violating the skyline of old London, but they don't violate the peace of a Christopher Wren church or, or the delightful welcome you feel when you just sit on a bench in a London park. Yes. James, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for your book. Again, James Sherwood's Discriminating Guide to London. Thank you so much, and I look forward to welcoming you in London. You'll find more in the notes for program number 500, posted to the radio section of ricksteves.com. This week, it includes a link to James Sherwood's blog commentaries, Letters from Bloomsbury Square, where he critiques modern life in London. Up next, a British guide who now makes her home in Berlin shares what she's learned about Germany from its pop music. It's Travel with Rick Steves. London was becoming too expensive for Macy Hitchcock, so she spent a year in Berlin studying art and architectural history. After finishing her master's back in London and landing a job at the BBC, she found herself still thinking about Berlin. It didn't take much to convince Macy to return to Berlin to enjoy that city's grand architecture, its sense of history, open spaces, and its currywurst. Macy works as a tour guide in Berlin now, and she joins us for a look at how you can better understand Germany by listening to its music, especially its contemporary pop and rock music from the last 50 years or so. Macy, how did Germany's pop culture scene differ from the one that American and British artists were setting the scene for back in the 1950s and 60s? Well, I think that actually Germany kind of took its own path post-World War II uh, in terms of pop. Uh, it was kind of forced to, in a way, because well, no one was really interested in what was going on in Germany, I imagine, musically after the war. And I think they really wanted to follow their own path. And you had in the beginning, you had something which is now kind of looked down on. It sells a lot, but it's not particularly cool. Schlager. No, uh, and how do you define Schlager? And I define Schlager, as I'd say, it's kind of, you know, say, schmaltzy. It's a German word, schmaltz, which is for, like, lard. So or, the word schmaltz yeah. is actually for a German word for lard. It is, yeah. So an American says schmaltzy, they are saying a German word. Yeah, they are indeed. And I think schmaltzy sums up Schlager completely. It embodies a Schlager. It's kind of like, um, would you say Barry Manilow is schmaltzy? I'd say it's a bit like new country music. It's the equivalent in the U.S., okay. this kind of country light I think there's a celebration of schmaltziness yes, in, in Schlager. Definitely. And the lyrics are simple. They're always romantic. They're optimistic. Often Schlager singers might be a bit older. And, and it sounds a little better when you've had a couple beers. It definitely does. And what you'll do is if you listen to Schlager music and you'll see it on the TV channels that broadcast, exclusively broadcast Schlager. Isn't there a band in uh, Castleruth, a yeah. Tyrolean band, that's the uh, the Castleruther or something like that. And it's just, it's international. They're a phenom. Yeah. They skip so much and it's all very simple, very happy, very yeah. light, umpa, schlager. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so but you're talking about a more serious cultural edge. Yes. And what, what is that? And there are different genres that the Germans have pioneered post-war. Um, one of them, kind of one that's had a very long-lasting impact, it's a little bit more obscure, but it's, you know, influenced contemporary music, especially independent music across Europe and the world. And that's Krautrock. <laughs> Doesn't sound great. Krautrock. So the Krautrock, in, insulting yeah. way to refer to a German is a kraut. Yeah. So this is Krautrock. Yes. And, and kraut means people who eat sauerkraut a lot, right? Basically, Okay, so yeah. and in Germany, you can actually call a genre Krautrock. Yes. It's kind of electronic, or how would it's you describe it? It's kind of electronic. It basically came emerged from the uh, 60s kind of counterculture movement. 68 was the birth of Krautrock. I think that year was when lots of young kind of dropouts, lots of students were kind of getting together 
forming communes, rejecting kind of their parents, the so generation. This is the Woodstock times in America. Absolutely, yeah. And it's the time you've got the student protests across Europe. So they're very much fired on by that. It's protest, it's political, it's, but it's electronic. It's electronic because they wanted their own kind of style of music. They didn't want to just copy the Americans. The idea was the Americans were kind of colonizing but electronic West in the sense of... Very avant-garde. Very okay, avant-garde. avant-garde. It, it, yeah. And they combine elements of kind of psychedelic rock. So there was an influence from rock and roll with that. And that's cult rock. And that's cult rock, yeah. Okay, and then what happened after that? And then after that, you have much later on, you have uh, things like the Neue Deutsche Welle movement, which was the Germans' take on New Wave, which is kind of more poppy. So Neue Welle, is that New Wave? New Wave, yeah. The New German Wave. So Neue Deutsche Welle, the New German Wave. Yes. So we have New Wave, our punk. This is German punk. Exactly, yeah. And it's kind of it was kind of more silly, believe it or not. Because our punk is sort of angry, <laughs> yeah. And it was like, oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. But in Germany, it was actually light and fun. Yes, it really? was. It was really self-effacing. I've been dressing up in silly costumes. There was a band called Der Plan from Dusseldorf who used to wear kind of ridiculous alien outfits and talk about picking pieces of pizza out of the dustbin. That kind of stuff. So as we're talking you know. about this, uh, Macy, if you can relate to American groups that we might be yes. able to see it, like would there be an American equivalent of a light and happy punk rocker? I would even say possibly Devo. Mm-hmm. They're quite famous. I'd say right. Devo is the equivalent, was the That's American equivalent. That's kind of what my guess yep. would be. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Macy Hitchcock. We're talking about modern German music, pop music in Germany and how it reflects the culture. When we're going through all of this, we all know how American music has reflected our culture as it's gone through difficult stages and as it's grown. How does the German story differ from the the American story? I mean, you've got Germany being basically reborn after World War II, you know, in in a different way to the rest of Europe. It was the defeated country. Uh, and it had a lot to gain. It needed to gain a lot. And I feel like a band like, uh, there were bands that kind of embraced the new uh, reborn Germany, because Germany emerged very, very quickly from the ashes of World War II, thanks to the Marshall Plan, well, West Germany, let's say. So America was injecting all yes. sorts of funds to build up its former enemy and make it a, a strong, stable, capitalist, free society. But the parents of a lot of the um, market for pop music were were former Nazis. Yes, absolutely. And the young people were basically trying to kind of get away from that. And you have the kind of the violent manifestation of that in the Bader-Meinhof group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I mentioned Kaltrock before. And one group that came out of the Kaltrock movement were Kraftwerk, which literally means a kind of factory. Kraftwerk. Now, I think the one American, the song that might have crossed the Atlantic was uh, Bon, 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 Autobahn. Autobahn, yes. And that is, for me, that was really... Was it fun, is, fun, fun, Autobahn? That was actually mis- it's misunderstood. That lyric is actually, they're saying, wir fahren auf der Autobahn, which means we drive on the Autobahn. But when Americans heard it and British people heard it, they thought, oh, they're saying the fun, fun, fun of the Autobahn. And when Kraftwerk translated their lyrics, they translated it into the fun, fun, fun oh, so of the Autobahn. Kraftwerk did an English-language version. Yes, they did, yeah. So, and yeah. I, I just heard Bahn, 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 Autobahn, <laughs> but it was... The original German was... Fahren, fahren, fahren. We drive, drive, drive on the Autobahn. What's the message of that song? I think the message is the idea is, you know, although I have to say the Autobahn was the product of the Third Reich. uh, Hitler Hitler. built the the, the super freeways of Germany to get their tanks from the Russian front to the French front in a hurry. Exactly. But, you know, it's a legacy, one of the few positive legacies of the Third Reich. And basically, I think what it represents is it's Germany moving forwards, it's emerging from the ashes of World War II, ah. and it's rebuilding itself, and it was becoming hugely a powerful economic kind of powerhouse, 
which was unexpected. You know, it really rapidly recovered from World War II thanks to this money. That is interesting. It probably was uh, sort of shocking to the Germans how they had basically destroyed Europe and suddenly they completely lost. They're completely bombed out. They get a complete, like a blood transfusion with new money and new mark, all funded by their former enemies, the Americans. And suddenly Germany is the powerhouse in Europe. They are importing Turks to be their guest arbiters. There's all sorts of economic power on the horizon. And take it up to today, and, and Germany really is the leading power in the European Union. The euro is kind of like the Deutschmark in disguise. That's what's so incredible about it, is that you have this Wirtschaftswunder, this economic miracle. It was a miracle, really, that happened. And I think Kraftwerk encapsulated that. And then it, whether it was conscious or not, I don't know. But a lot of their songs were about technology. They were about moving forwards. They were about the future. Uh, and they're very so positive and really forward-looking. Clear. We're making a yeah. clean break with the past. Yep. Our parents, yep. God bless them, they're done. That's yep. no more of that. Now we look ahead. Yeah. And they even built their own instruments. And they were seen as very, very groundbreaking. What instruments would those have been? Synthesizers. They originally incorporated things like they used things like flutes with synthesizers, electronic synthesizers. And in the end, they just used to build everything themselves. They had their own big studio in Düsseldorf, and they were famous for kind of creating. Now the reality here: you got superpower Western Germany, the model of a new capitalist society, free, pluralistic, and you got Eastern Germany, the DDR, that until 1990 was living under a communist dictatorship that worked very hard to control the pop scene. What was the music and pop culture scene on the other side of the Berlin Wall like in the 1980s? Well, it was a very different story because the regime, um, especially, actually, I'd say earlier on, the regime was very opposed to any kind of American, any kind of rock and roll, because they saw it as corrupting East German youth, taking them away from socialism. By the 1980s, they'd mellowed a bit. But before that, you had them clamping down very heavily on dissident singers there was a very famous singer called Wolf Biermann, who was basically, I'd say, the East German equivalent of Woody Guthrie or Bob Dylan. He was out there doing his protest songs. He was actually an East German protesting against the communist system, yes. and he got away with it? Well, no, he didn't, actually. What's incredible about Wolf Biermann is he actually grew up in the West, and he moved to the East at the age of 17 in order to live in communist East Germany. He moved by choice as a teenager? Yes. He wasn't dragged there by his parents? No, no, he was a convinced communist, and he thought things would be better on the other side of the and wall. And he was a folk singer like Woody Guthrie? Yeah, he was in, involved in theatre, and he was a very accomplished academic, and he ended up writing these protest songs, um, so criticising the regime. Yes. So he went there idealistically. Absolutely, and this yeah. man's name is Biermann. Uh, Wolf Biermann, yeah. Did he end up being silenced by the government? Yes. He basically got a ban on performing live in 1965. Now, my understanding is the government there would rather take a nobody from the West and pretend they are the Bob Dylan who's left capitalism, and then they make them a fake star. There was a guy named Dean Reed who was yes. famous all over the Warsaw Pact yep. as the escapee from American capitalism. And people, teenagers in Eastern Europe, genuinely thought this guy was a James Taylor or a Bob Dylan who really preferred to be in the communist world. And he sang propaganda songs that were pop hits. Yeah, and they had to basically, you know, because there weren't many of those around, you couldn't get many people to sing in the service of the regime. People preferred not to. You were uncool if you did that. Right. And of course, many young East Germans were secretly listening to Western radio anyway. 
So that was the hottest thing when I traveled in communist East Germany was uh, cassettes from the West. Yes. What you had is you had basically people recording, you know, Western radio. I brought my cassette to Bulgaria and I gave it to my friend and he said, tomorrow there will be 50 copies of this. Yes. And all of my friends will have it. Absolutely. And they had machines in people's basements that could, in a garage kind of way, duplicate all of yeah. these cassettes. Yeah. And you even had cassette DJs because you basically had to... No one had any vinyl. If you had vinyl, it was very expensive. There was a state record label called Amiga, but a lot of them, the stuff they were producing was not what the young people wanted. If you went to a disco, most young East Germans wanted to listen to Western music, right. but DJs were forced to play a minimum of 60% East German pop. Macy Hitchcock lives in Berlin, and she's our guide now into the past half-century of pop and rock music in Germany. And we're talking about how it reflects the changes in German society during and after the Cold War. Macy, in 1990 or so, that's the end of communism, Germany is united, 70 million people, a country the size of Montana, a superpower culturally and economically in Europe. The new generation of German music, the young generation, is, is much more um, multi-ethnic now. Does that yes. show itself in its music? Yeah, it definitely does. I'd say, especially since 1990, um, you've got a lot of uh, hip-hop is massive in Germany. I think German hip-hop music scene is the second biggest in the world, believe it or not. Now, how does hip-hop in Germany compare to hip-hop in America? As we were talking in punk, there was not the anger and the edge in Germany. In the hip-hop scene, it's multi-ethnic. Uh, how would it relate to the hip-hop we know in the United States? What you have is you have a lot of second, third generation immigrants who will be making the kind of hip-hop that has parallels. I'd say it's more like the stuff that was coming out in New York in the 1970s, the Grandmaster Flash scene, where it was like young people just going out there and kind of wrapping their heads off. And these are basically marginalised groups. They're poorer. They represent, you know, the, the Kurds, the Turks. So the equivalent um, of inner-city American yeah. street music. Yeah. And that stuff's often a bit darker. Amazing production on it. That's what's so incredible about it. Do you appreciate it? As, I as do, art? actually. I mean, my German friends often say, how can you listen to it? It's so awful, German rap. Why don't you listen to American? And rap and I'm saying that's what's interesting about it because it gives me insight into the culture into the reality yeah. of, of the immigrant yeah. world in the yeah. in the barrios yeah. of German big cities lots of slang um, lots of the young Arab rappers they'll use lots of Arab words they have their own culture there's a very strong kind of hip hop movement out coming out of Frankfurt that kind of area um, singers like uh, Haftbefehl uh, Aslak the record label all that kind of thing and it's very cutting edge <laughs> Would this be African or... Because Turkish is a, a huge um, slice of the German population these days. I mean, the Turks form a, a large part of it. They have their own kind of vernacular, but you have also a very, very large... It's Arab, primarily, mm, it's I'd most, say. A lot Arab. of Arab. But then you have the other side of it. The thing is, you have different... It depends on the music scene. You know, It depends on the, on the type of music you want to listen to, because it's like being in the US. It's like there isn't just one... It's very fragmented. But some, like Nina has transcended this, uh, she's there for, for decades. Yeah, she's, but she's like a pop icon. For, for me, from this side of the Atlantic, yeah. I, when I think pop German music, I yeah. think Nina. And for me, the great thing about Nina is she defeats this idea that the German language does not sound beautiful. It's a beautiful language when, when somebody like Nina sings yeah. it. And I have to say, I think, I know, I hate to mention the R word, but I still think Rammstein manage it, although it's not beautiful like Nina. Rammstein? Yeah. And what is that exactly? Rammstein are a six, I think they're a six-man band from East Germany. They uh -huh. grew up in the 90s under the communist regime. They were part of the punk scene in the GDR. 
and they survived the and unification. They, su- they survived unification, and they were young, you know, guys in their mid twenties after unification, and they basically copied a band, I'd say, in Slovenia called Laibach, mm-hmm. who did this very kind of martial, militaristic-sounding electronic music, but they made it. Rammstein made it more metalish, so they un- introduced very metal elements to it. Because that martial metallic yeah. sound was almost a battle cry in fo- yes. ex-Yugoslavia as they fought their battles. Absolutely, and it yeah. was. I think Rammstein picked up on that, and also yeah. there was that same thing of Rammstein having grown up under the communist Leibach did and I think it was a reflection of that and also mocking it there was a lot of kind of mockery Uh, they're making fun of themselves they kind of embrace very violent uh, controversial themes I don't know whether that's also connected with growing up in East Germany of being able to finally kind of throw your toys out of the pram finally you know you can psychoanalyze so much. Yeah, of this. exactly. And, and Germany has such interesting history. Yeah. I find, and just anecdotally as I travel around, Germany is kind of a mecca for trance music. People go to Berlin for these festivals, yeah. and uh, it almost doesn't translate into you know broadcast media, but it's a happening. Can you talk a little bit about the electronica? Yeah, electronica. I mean, because the Germans pioneered, in my view, and well, generally it's accepted, had huge impact on the music scene, electronic music scene worldwide. It's remained the kind of land of electronica. So you go to places like Berlin. I mean, it's getting a lot of press at the moment. There's a club called Berghain. It's in the international press. It's kind of a bit over. But it's this gigantic building where people go in. They don't get there until three in the morning. They may not get let in. There's a legendary, a very difficult, uh, what we call a Türsteher, a bouncer on the door called Sven, who has this kind of dark glasses, this great big beard, looks like a biker. And he just basically turns away most people. If you look like a tourist, you're not getting in. There's no mobile phones, no cell phones allowed inside, so no photographs adding to the kind of you know, enigmatic character of this place. And it's just, you go in there and it's just thumping electro for hours and hours. And these parties go on for days and days and days. And it's, you go inside and it kind of looks like a church with these great big windows. It's an old industrial building. And that is real testament to how electronic music has just continued to dominate Germany. And, and where, where was that? And that's in Berlin. In Berlin. Is there yeah. a scene in Hamburg also, or is it mostly Berlin? I'd say there is a scene in Hamburg. They have a kind of different thing going on there. Because I've heard in Hamburg people go and they just lose themselves for a, an entire week. Oh, yeah, they absolutely do. Clubs. I mean, that's, I say, it's Germany all over. It's particularly, have, I say, Hamburg and Berlin, those are the most liberal. Not for a while. I'm getting a bit. Old. I'm getting a bit old for that. I have to say, in I Berlin, can't keep up in, with. In my Berlin, friends. they've got these concrete flak towers that yes. date back to the Hitler times, and they're just too thick to tear down, and they just are thumping with this modern yeah. techno music. It's the perfect environment. It's this kind of edgy. You know, it feels a bit post-industrial, and it continues despite the fact Berlin's now evolving into much more of a kind of contemporary, dynamic city. There's still this sort of edginess to it that people are very attracted to and want to be part of. So if people want to learn more about that before their trip and then connect with German pop scene when they do go to Germany, what's your advice? Do you know, I'd say the best thing to do when you get to Germany, they have an amazing live music scene. I'd say Berlin and Hamburg are the best places, Mm -hmm. but you have in Munich, you have great live venues. Mm -hmm. If you just check out, like, you know, just Google, like, pop concerts Berlin, and it's just every day you'll have loads going on, and there's always something going on in Berlin. Macy Hitchcock, that is so interesting. It's a dimension of German culture that the average traveler uh, really doesn't pay much attention to and, and perhaps should. Thanks so much. Thank you. Da, da, da. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had help this week from the BBC's Wogan House Studios in London. 
Special thanks to our colleagues at the Content Depot at NPR in Washington. You can comment on what you hear each week in our listener forum in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we're glad to hear directly from you by email to radio at ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. I couldn't have liked it more. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.